is giving it to Abraham. He's giving him the details of how to construct this and uh, what it is supposed to be made out of. And uh, tonight we come to the table of showbread, and I thought that it would be fitting for us to come to this passage before we go to the Lord's table. And so Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 23, God says to Moses, Thou shalt also make a table of shittim wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make thereto a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt make unto it a border of an handbreadth round about, and thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. And thou shalt make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings in the four corners that are on the four feet thereof. Over against the border shall the rings be placed of the staves to bear the table. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold, and the table may be borne with them. And thou shalt make the dishes thereof, and spoons thereof, and covers thereof, and bowls thereof, to cover with all of pure gold shalt thou make them. And thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. Let's pray. Lord, once again, it is our privilege to come into your presence, to uh, get into your word. I just pray and ask that you would direct us tonight, that we would uh, see the beautiful witness of the bread on the table in the tabernacle, and that we would see the witness in the Lord's table tonight. Lead us and guide us. Help us to draw nearer to you, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the next piece of the tabernacle furniture described is called the table of showbread or the table of shoebread. If you have the old King James as I use, it is spelled shoebread. To orientate ourselves, uh, remember that the tabernacle had one door. And that when the tabernacle was set up, the door would face the east. And as you went into that doorway, you would enter into the first chamber of the tabernacle. And then there would be a dividing curtain wall in the middle or two-thirds in, running north to south, separating the first chamber from the second chamber. The first chamber was called the holy place. The second was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. The holy of holies housed one piece of furniture. If you remember, that was the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the testimony or the law. Later it had Aaron's rod that budded. They had a bowl of manna that was placed in there. And then on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. That, uh, that room housed the Ark. The Ark is the centerpiece of the entire tabernacle because that's where God is able to meet with man. There is a mediation that happens there because of the blood being spread and shed over the law and so God said he would meet with them there but that room was restricted to only the high priest so only one man out of all the millions of people in Israel was only allowed to go into that room once per year and that was on the day of atonement there were certain restrictions to that the first room of the tabernacle had three pieces of furniture. And so as you came in that door on the north side, so if I'm coming in from the east to coming into the doorway, to the north side or to the right side would be a table with showbread on it. 
directly in front of you against that curtain on the west end would be the altar of incense where there was incense perpetually burning. And then to the south side or to the left would be the candlestick or candle obra. It had seven candle obras in it that were fueled by oil. And it was to be lit and filled every single day uh, so that the light was never to go out in the tabernacle. In my human reasoning, as I think about the order in which this is given to us in Scripture, I would think that the table of showbread is not what I would expect to be placed second after the ark. To me, that's not, that's not, that, that doesn't reach second place. I would think in this tabernacle that has no windows that's covered over by multiple layers of dark cloth and a form of leather that the first thing would be the light that is in there. Not only because it would illuminate the room, but because it would also represent the light of God in the world. But that's not the order in which it is described. I would even think that maybe the ark or the altar would be second place because it's nearest in proximity. So if we're working from the inside out and the ark is placed in first and then the curtain, then the altar, and then either the candle obra or the table of showbread. But according to God's word, that's not the order in which God gave it. It goes the ark and then the table of showbread, then the candlestick, and then the altar of incense. As you read in Exodus 25, this is the order of the design that God gave. He tells Moses how to build the ark, and then the table, and then the candle, and then the altar. If you go to Exodus chapter 40, which we want tonight, when the furniture was placed in the tabernacle, it was the same order. Put the ark in first, and then the table of showbread, then the candle, and then the altar of incense. And so I will explain that in a moment, but first I want us to picture uh, the table from this text. As we read, verse 23 gives us the dimensions as one cubit by two cubits, which is approximately a foot and a half by three feet. And so you might think of something like a... I think my wife called it a sofa table. It was one of those narrow tables that would go behind the couch, or sometimes it's called a console table that goes near to a wall. It's pretty shallow. It's not very deep, inch and a half, and then it's about three feet wide. Uh, verses 23 and the first half of verse 24 informs us that it's constructed out of the same materials as the Ark of the Covenant. And so it is made out of acacia wood or shittim wood, and it is overlaid with gold. The second half of verse 24 and all of verse 25 tell us that there's an ornamental trim around the top edge like a crown. And so it says to build a crown around it. It also tells us about a trim detail that's a handbreadth that's three to four inches the, about the average width of a hand. And so it was a table, but instead of being flat, it had this trim detail that came up like a crown. If that seems odd to you, I would just uh, direct you to think about the crown molding that you see on your cabinets sometimes, right? Uh, we know that crown molding goes on the top of the wall and bridges the gap to the ceiling, but in a lot of homes, you go in and in the cabinetry work, there is this crown molding that goes around the top that, that goes out. And so it's like that, but it's going to be more ornate, and it's going to literally look like a crown. 
a few reasons. It points to deity and the royalty of God and, and, uh, and those sorts of things. There's a security about it as it acts as a rail around the table so that the uh, bread is not easily slid off or knocked off. And then it, it goes on, verses 26 through 28, to describe the, the rings that were attached on each side. And so similarly to the ark, the, the priests were never allowed to touch it. It was forbidden to touch that furniture. And so the way to transport it was they would attach rings on the corners and then they would slide poles through it so that the priest could pick up the poles and transport the furniture and do it safely but also do it sacredly without ever literally touching it like it's common everyday household furniture. And then verse 29 says that there were dishes and utensils, and those were of pure gold. Uh, there was some incense or, or some, uh, some uh, uh, frankincense that was to be put on top there. There were some other utensils. Those were all made out of pure gold. And then that brings us to verse number 30, and this really is the focal point for us this evening. And verse 30 says this, Thou shalt set upon the table shewbread before me, Always. So what's the whole point of this table? It's not just decor in the tabernacle because there's a limited amount of people who see it in the first place. It's only the priests. And so the purpose of the table, we are told, was so that there was a place to set the shoebread and that the shoebread was to be before God, he says, uh, always. As a matter of fact, in the King James, it says always. It's a word we don't use anymore, but you find it in Matthew 28, 20. Uh, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. The difference between always and always is expressed that always means every time. Always means all the time. And so it was to be a perpetual representation or witness there. Shoe is archaic form of the word show, which literally means the bread of the face or the bread of presence. And so it's not that there were faces stamped into the bread. It is the idea that the bread represented the presence or the face of God. They were coming into the presence of God. There was a testimony there of the bread of God to the people. And also the bread also uh, testified to the people being in the presence of God. We're told that this was hallowed bread. And so it was specifically for this purpose. It wasn't what they ate every day. It wasn't what everybody had. This bread was specifically prepared for this table. And it was hallowed. If you remember when David is running from Saul and he asks uh, the priest, do you have any bread? All we have is this hallowed bread. And he's talking about the show bread there in 1 Samuel 21. And so it is set as a permanent fixture in the tabernacle and it is a perpetual witness to God and to the priest. According to Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, there were 12 flat cakes of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, they are arranged in two rows side by side with six cakes stacked in each row. And so 12 cakes, two stacks of six on the table every day. Uh, we are told in the scriptures that they were baked, fresh, and replaced every Sabbath day, according to 1 Chronicles 9, 32. 
And so every week it was one of the priests or one of the courses of the priest's job to bake the shoe bread. And then they would bring it in, they would trade out the old bread and replace it with the new bread. This, however, is what's interesting to me. The old cakes were to be eaten by the priest in the tabernacle. That was the stipulation. So what do they do with the old bread? Well, the priests who had the duty of the altar of incense and the candle obra and the shoe bread had to consume the bread in the tabernacle. Now that's different than the offerings because if you remember or if you've read through Leviticus when meat offerings were given so much of it was burnt so much of it was used but then there were parts of it that the priests were allowed to take and they took it home with them and it was part of how God supported the priesthood was through that and so they were allowed to take some of the meat of the offerings out of the altar and take it home with them and eat it but the showbread was only to be eaten by the priest in the tabernacle. Uh, why was this table of showbread given this place of prominence? Why, I asked in the beginning, why is it second place? And it, it's because it has to do with communion. If you notice, looking back in verse 23... Uh, there is a word that is used that you won't find anywhere else. I think you find it one other time in this whole encounter with the tabernacle. It's in Exodus chapter 30. But it, it's that little word in verse 23 also. Thou shalt also make a table of shittim wood. That little word also is a direct connection back to verse 22. It, it ties it in to the last thing that God said about the ark. He says in verse 22, And there I will meet with thee. And I will, watch this next word, commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony. And so uh, commentators believe that that little word in verse 23 also connects the table of showbread to the idea of communion with God that is just described in verse 22. Remember, once again, the, the priest, only the high priest is allowed to go into that holy of holies, and he's only allowed to go in once a year on the Day of Atonement, yet God's presence is dwelling in that tabernacle and in that room, and when they come into it, they are coming in communion with God. And so that table of showbread has to do with communion uh, with God. As you think about it and you think through it in Scripture, the table represents a place of fellowship. Uh, it's illustrated by David's invitation to Mephibosheth. If you remember, after David ascends to the throne, he inquires, are there any of the line of Saul, any of the line of David that are left? And somebody says, yes, there is a son of Jonathan who is still alive. His name is Mephibosheth. He's crippled in his feet because uh, he was dropped when they were fleeing when the kingdom was overthrown. And David sends a, an invitation to Mephibosheth, and here is the words of the invitation, He shall eat bread always at my table. And so the table in Scripture is representative of fellowship. 
And so David says, I'm going to have fellowship with the descendant of Jonathan. And that fellowship is going to happen at my table. I'm going to feed him at my table. Furthermore, as we go into the New Testament, we find that the Lord's table is synonymous with communion with Christ. If you have uh, your Bible there, let's uh, journey over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we're trying to get at this idea of why is that table the second piece? What does the bread have to do and how is it connected to communion? And we begin to put some clues together where we see that God consistently throughout Scripture has used the table as a representation of fellowship. It is a place of communion. We even use it that day. Uh, now we talk about breaking bread together. And, uh, and so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10... Verse 16, you read these words. The cup of the blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And then if you drop down later in that text to verse 21, it says you cannot drink the cup, which you just mentioned in verse 16, of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils and so here we find that not only is the table connected to fellowship it is synonymous with communion it is the idea of having that shared common union with those around the table as you think about the significance of the bread that is placed on that table you might say, why did God place that? Out of all the things you could have placed in the tabernacle, why is it bread? Right? It's not the sacrifice. That happens outside in the courtyard. There's an altar where those are sacrificed. There's a place where the blood is drained by the altar. There's a place where it is burnt. That doesn't happen in the tabernacle. The only food item that he placed in the tabernacle was the bread. Well, I, I draw you back to... Something I said when we first started ta studying the tabernacle, and that is everything points to Christ. Everything in this tabernacle is God drawing arrows that are pointing them toward the coming Messiah. He is the mercy seat. He is uh, the mediator. He is the light of the world. He is the offering of incense to God. He is all these things. But you know what he also is? He is the bread of life. And in John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ preached a message that seemed to be radical to the audience that heard it. In fact, after he preached this message, he had many people that turned away from him. In John chapter 6, he begins in verse 35 by saying, I am the bread of life. You find it again in verse 48. I am that bread of life. He says it again in verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. And so the Bible goes on to say that many from that time went away because they couldn't understand it. What is he talking about? Eat his flesh, drink his blood. Many in that audience were confused and didn't understand what Jesus meant by this. But, but on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he did something that made it crystal clear to his disciples. He took some unleavened bread. And he broke it, and he passed it to them, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. He took a cup that was filled with the uh, squeezings of the grape, the juice of the vine, and he said, Take this cup, it is my blood for the remission of sins. And so Jesus' message in John chapter 6 was not that we had to cannibalize Jesus to be saved, but that it was we had to be in communion with him through faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. And just as that table of showbread was a symbol of communion with God, so Jesus institutes a new table in the new covenant at the Passover when his disciples are seated around the table with him. And once again, there's bread on the table that is serving as a witness, a bread of presence, that God is present with them and that they are present with God, and thus instituting the Lord's Supper as an act of communion and a testimony of his provision. And so as I said, we are coming to the Lord's table tonight. And on this table, you will find two elements. They are unleavened bread and an unfermented grape juice. Those two elements are what Jesus used to institute the Lord's Supper and to give us a testimony to us. He did it so that it would become a memorial. So that in our minds, every time we come to this table, we remember that Christ sacrificed his body for us that he shed his blood for us, that God became a man, came into our presence here on earth, and made a way for us to have communion with God. And so just as those priests would come into that tabernacle and see the bread on the table and be reminded of the communion that they have with God, you and I can come to this table and be reminded of the communion that we have with the Lord. This Communion observation is laid out for us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, where the Apostle Paul writes, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it. And he said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Before we come to the table tonight, we always take an opportunity to examine ourselves. You see, if there is something in our heart or in our life that God has indicated should not be there, we shouldn't sit here in abstinence of this meal. Instead, God's prescription is examine your heart, confess your sin, and then come to the table. Because what God desires most of all with you and I is communion. He's not simply trying to get you and I to keep all of his rules. He wants to walk in step with us. He wants a relationship with us. And the only way that that is possible is when we are walking with him, when we are forsaking our sin and we are following him. And so let's take a few moments this evening, a few moments of silence, and let's pray. Let's invite the Lord to search our hearts. And if there is something there that that needs to be confessed, then confess it to the Lord and accept his promise of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then let's come and rejoice in the communion that we have with him. Let's pray. Somehow, Lord, in the silence, you speak the loudest. It never ceases to amaze me that when I quiet myself before you and I turn off all the noise and I shut off all other distractions, that I begin to hear your voice, sense your leadings, the convicting power of your promptings. Father, we bring ourselves before you for an examination We invite you to search our hearts, our minds, to expose and reveal anything that may be there that should not be. It is not that we are craving or desiring to sin. It is that we have such a deficiency in our flesh that just like flies getting into a house, it seems like the sin gets into our lives every time we open the door. 
Father, I pray that you would give us victory over our sins and that you would help us, Lord, to wage the battle against them, that we would, Lord, sin less as we draw closer to you. Father, we thank you for the gift of repentance and the promise of forgiveness and that we can claim your promise not based upon our penance but based upon your promise that you will forgive us when we simply confess our sins to you. And so, Father, I pray that each and every one would be able to find communion tonight with a clean heart and clean hands as they've brought them before you and allowed you, Lord, to examine them, to wash them. Father, I pray that tonight, as we approach your table, that there would be a powerful witness in the bread and in the cup, and that we would be vividly reminded of the sacrifice that saved us and the blood that seals us for all eternity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.